Okay, welcome everyone. Let's begin and uh, we'll start with a prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, we bless and praise you tonight. Lord, we thank you for the gift of our minds, for the gifts of our bodies, and of this created universe. We ask you tonight to bless our, uh, our speaker, Dr. Selner Wright. Bless all of us. Help us to seek after the truth, uh, to love goodness, truth, and beauty above all things. Uh, we ask you to bless our culture. We ask you to bless us with clear thought uh, and with hearts that are open to goodness. Uh, we give this night to you, uh, and we entrust it to you through the hands of Our Lady. We pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Lords, St. Thomas Aquinas, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Welcome, everyone. Um, if you're here tonight and you're not Catholic, I'm sorry if I just made you uncomfortable. That was not my intention. Uh, we're so glad you're here. What a great turnout. Uh, a couple announcements, and then we'll bring up Dr. Selner Wright. We did, uh, if you'll notice, we did remove the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, the tabernacle is absent, and so we wanted to make sure this was appropriately reverent. Uh, so it is okay to have food and drink. Um, it is still kind of a space we use for Mass, so of course, please still be respectful. Check out uh, lordsdenver.org. That's our website. Uh, we have lots of things going on here. We have speakers. Uh, we're, if we, if it, we can get it to work, we're going to try and get the recording up on our website of this talk. If you're here tonight, if, if you're someone who has questions, we love that. We love the dialogue about truth. We do ask, as always, that we have cordial dialogue. Uh, so if you're someone tonight, maybe you have a question or you have something you disagree with, that's perfectly fair. But we do ask that you keep a respectful tone. Uh, and then we always kind of assume other people's good intentions. That's the best of assumptions. A couple other announcements. Uh, Dr. Selner Wright's going to be back on December 15th. Uh, her and I are going to be leading a retreat for Advent. That's going to start at 8.30 in the morning here. And it'll go until 2 p.m. Tonight's talk is part of a series for our school. Uh, and I just want to thank all of our school families. There's amazing things happening here at Our Lady of Lords. This is one of the flagship schools for classical education in the country. Uh, I want to thank our principal, Rosemary, in the back for all she's done for that. Ryan uh, O'Connor, our vice principal up here, all of our faculty, just amazing people who've done that. Uh, check out our school, a lot going on, help spread the word about that. We also have a year-end match right now. We have a very generous donor who has donated $25,000 uh, that's being matched uh, for every dollar that's donated. So if you can help our school, that would be awesome. Help kids pursue truth. Help them get a good Catholic education. There's info at the table over in the back there. And you can go to our website or to lordsclassical.org. Real joy for me tonight. So Dr. Susan Selner writes uh, a, a little bit of her curriculum vitae. Uh, so Dr. Selner Wright got her bachelor's degree from the University of Notre Dame. And then she did her graduate work, both her master's and her doctorate, 
uh, at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. She is the Archbishop Charles Chaput Chair of Philosophy at St. John Vianney Theological Seminary, and she is largely responsible for my homilies. So if you don't like them, you can talk to her. But uh, Dr. Selna Wright is very accomplished. She's wrote a lot in different philosophical journals. She helped found Endow, the uh, group that's, uh, that Endow stands for Educating on the Nature and Dignity of Women, which is largely focused on the thought of St. John Paul II. Uh, she has been hugely active in Denver in helping the Catholic Church here thrive. Uh, she is the article of, among other things, Aquinas for Beginners, scholarly articles published in journals, including Logos, an international philosophical quarterly. She also had a tremendous accomplishment. She's the translator and editor of On Creation, which is a translation of St. Thomas's De Potentia Dei, Question 3, published by the Catholic University of American Press. She's a member of the Catholic Women's Forum. One story, when I went to seminary, I didn't think philosophy was important. I really didn't. I didn't, know, I didn't really know what it was yet. And I went to seminary, and I just wanted to get to theology. And the woman you'll hear tonight, Dr. Susan Sonner Wright, and her husband completely changed the way I thought. Uh, after two years in philosophy, I became conv I, I frequently tell people that I finished the philosophy cycle in the seminary, and I said, for the first time in my life, I know how to think. And I largely credit that to Dr. Susan Sonner Wright and her husband, Terry. Uh, so great joy to have her here. Please welcome Dr. Susan Sonner Wright. very tall. So just to reassure everybody, look at this cool thing I just discovered how to do with my phone. <laughs> All right, so I promise I will try to definitely not go past like 710. Um, and if anybody needs to get up and go, um, I won't be offended. All right. I'll just save the really good stuff for after you're gone. <laughs> okay. Um, I uh, have been working on this issue for some time, and um, it's, it's very important, and the, the level of confusion out there uh, seems just to grow uh, week by week. So I think it's important to, um, to talk about it. I think one of the reasons that um, we don't talk about it um, as much as we should is because the, uh, the um, issues are so intertwined with, reach, with each other and they go from things that are perfectly fine to talk to a five-year-old about to something you, know, you wouldn't want to talk to a 25-year-old about. Um, and, and that's uh, one of the difficulties. So I'm gonna try to keep it uh, so Nobody's getting too uncomfortable, but um, if I can't completely do that, sorry. Um, and um, I am not going into real depth. Uh, I was saying to somebody, we had a conference at the seminary uh, 18 months ago that was a, th a three-day conference with eight different hour-long talks. Uh, 
and we, we felt like we kind of got the <laughs> a grip on the thing. So what I can do in 40 minutes is clearly just kind of skim the surface. So what I tried to think about as I was uh, preparing was what do parents need to know? What do grandparents, what do aunts and uncles, what do uh, teachers need to know um, as they encounter uh, people who are having difficulty um, with gender issues? And I think the first thing that we need to know if we're Catholic is how, how um, do the basic principles of Catholic thought uh, come into play in this, right? What, what is the Catholic mind on this? For any of you who aren't Catholic, I, I will now scandalize you, uh, we claim that the church is an expert in humanity. And that's, especially the last couple months, kind of hard to say in public, right? <laughs> so if, you're so, if you're so expert, why don't you do it better? Um, and that's a very fair uh, reproach. When we say that the church is an expert in humanity, though, we don't mean that any particular person in the church is the complete be-all and end-all expert and knows everything that there is to know about humanity. What we mean is that we have spent 2,000 years thinking about what has been revealed to us about humanity and also what the, the, the best human minds have been able to um, conclude to as they have applied their minds to the question of what is it to be a human being and what is the best human life. So when we have the audacity to, to claim that the church is an expert, that's what we mean. We've been thinking about it for 2,000 years. Um, so somebody who's been thinking about it for a year, that's great. And, and maybe you have something to add. Uh, but we're pretty confident that we've got some pretty serious uh, points to offer. So. Uh, I want to let you know that if, if this is a topic that's important for you for personal or professional reasons, there's a couple of other uh, resources. Um, there's going to be a conference at the John Paul II Center in January, uh, January 19th on a Saturday from 9 to 5. So that'll be a more complete um, kind of, of uh, digging into some of these issues. Uh, Christina Hummel is here, okay, from the Office of Evangelization and Family Life. Um, there are flyers on the back table about that conference, and she's also here, will be back there too if anybody's got questions about that. Another resource I would really recommend to you, um, the, the back of my handout, can you tell I'm an academic? There is a handout. There is a bibliography on the handout, okay. Um, under history, there's an article there by, um, in many ways, my mentor, Sister Mary Prudence Allen, um, titled Gender Reality Versus Gender Ideology. Um, I tried the, the, except for that, the bibliography only has things that have come out in the last uh, two months. So um, what Sister Prudence does very well is kind of give the history, how did we get here? Um, and talking about uh, some of the important players, particularly in the United States, who have shaped um, the, um, 
very much over-sexualized culture that we are now living in, right? This didn't just happen in the last two years. This has been 50, 60, 70 years in the making. And she gives the uh, line of who did what and when did we start assuming that that was true and not just a theory. Okay, my part is um, to begin by talking about how do we think about things with a Catholic mind. And that's the start of, of the handout. There are four basic philosophical commitments of the Catholic mind, and I owe this formulation to my husband, who was the first one to kind of say this in, in conversation with me, and we were both like, what did you just say? We gotta write that down, that was really good. Okay, so here it is on my handout. Uh, okay, um, and what's important about these principles, part of what needs to be understood, is that nobody needs to have faith to be confident in these principles. These are principles that are perfectly defensible on a purely rational level. And if anybody wants to take one of them up in the question and answer period, I'd be happy to demonstrate that, okay? Uh, all of these rest on perfectly rational foundations and have never been proven false. But many people act as though they have been proven false. They haven't been. They've just been presumed to be false right, basically with, without any good evidence. A lot of people don't, wanna, don't want them to be true. Well, that's not enough to make them really not be true. Yeah. Okay, so the first principle is a, a, a creation metaphysics. And what that means is that we are convinced that reality itself is caused and ordered by a good God. That makes a big difference right? <laughs> if you are convicted about that. Okay, and uh, we are convinced that, that uh, you don't have to check your brain at the door to, to uh, believe that. If you bring your brain in the door and use it well, right, it, is, it, it, it can come to this conclusion. Many people hold this by faith, and that's fine, but that's not required to hold it. The second point is, is when we really get from Aristotle, a good pagan, right? Uh, and that is a hylomorphic anthropology, the idea that human beings are composed of form and matter, right? Um, matter, hele, form, morphe, hence hylomorphic. We are ensouled bodies, right? I am one thing which has these two different aspects which make each other possible. I am an ensouled body or an embodied spirit, right? Depending on your mood, right? Which one of those makes more sense to you? My body is as much me as my soul is. My body reveals reality to me. We believe that. Third, a realist epistemology. The human intellect is made to understand reality. Okay, we are not lost in this fog of we can't figure out what is true about anything, right? Okay, there are, there are many people who feel that way, but they don't have to. That is not actually our existential condition, right? Uh, the human intellect is made to understand reality. And we believe, and uh, I think we can argue, 
that the same God who made the material cosmos also made the human mind and that they're made for each other. Now that idea also is you'll find in Aristotle. He doesn't put God uh, having the same kind of role that, that we understand God to have, but he definitely understands the mind and the world to, to be um, made for each other, right? Uh, and I think he's right, right? We have a lot of evidence that he's right. Fourth, objective ethics. Human beings are both rational and free. That's, those are our defining characteristics. We are able to use our minds to understand God's ordering of reality and our freedom to set ourselves in harmony with that order. And doing so is what our flourishing requires, and that's our dignity, right? Out of all creation, we're the ones who have the freedom to understand the order and to um, agree to it, right? That's a very different view of, of how reality works and what human beings are like than what we get presumed in, in quite a bit of the popular culture. And in particular, it's very different from the kind of self-invention that people are invited to by things like the gender unicorn, right? There he is on your, your handout. Uh, who here has seen the gender unicorn before? Okay, so quite a few, a few of you are, are familiar with it, but a lot of you aren't. Okay, this is, this is all over the place, right? And what do you notice about the gender unicorn? What age group does he seem to be designed to appeal to? Very young kids, right? Okay. Uh, the gender unicorn is it basically an invitation to each person, whatever their age is, to go through five different aspects of their life and to kind of put themselves on a scale, right? And to decide, well, where do I fall on that scale? And then they will come up with this unique picture of themselves and their own gender identity. Okay. Uh, the, the different things that uh, we're supposed to think about with the uh, gender unicorn, he's got this little red heart, the, the darker heart there. That's supposed to represent who am I emotionally or romantically attracted to? Right? So first of all, emotionally and romantically, that's the same thing, right? Okay, sorry dad, that's a little weird, right? Okay, there's this, this real kind of squishing things together that don't really belong together. And if you ask an eight-year-old, who are you romantically attracted to, right? The correct response from an eight-year-old would be, ooh, right? Right? That's perfectly developmentally appropriate. But if we try to convince them, oh, no, you have to answer that, right? Well, who knows what they would come up with, right? Okay. Um, the orange heart, the, the other heart, is supposed to be about who you're sexually attracted to. Now, any 8-year-old, 10-year-old, maybe even 12-year-old who can answer that question, th th there's something really wrong there. Right? It is not developmentally appropriate for a child before puberty to kind of think of themselves as being sexually attracted to someone else. There's a pretty serious problem there. 
Uh, then we get this little genetic uh, symbol right at the top of the unicorn's legs. That's the one part that any kid will get. That's your biological sex at birth. Right? That one they're pretty clear about. Okay, the, the dots along the side of the unicorn, that's your gender expression, which largely means which gender stereotypes do you like the best, right? Do you think pink nail polish is really cool, right? Well, then that tells us this about your gender. Do you, do you prefer, you know, uh, rough and tumble play to this other kind of play? Right? So just look at these stereotypes and, and decide which of those you fit better. Right? But those are stereotypes. Right? We're not supposed to feel locked into those. Right? But, okay. Uh, and then we have the rainbow in the mind, right? Which is this reference to gender identity. Somebody's decision, basically, about what their gender is based on all of these other factors, okay? Part of what characterizes this is this, this drive toward, I have to decide these things about myself, as opposed to discovering something about myself, right? <laughs> I have to decide these things. Instead of experiencing my life, my body, myself as something given, right, as a gift, I'm, it, it transforms it into, I have the burden of concocting it all for myself. And not only that, it's, it's very fragmented, right? I gotta think about the emotional, the romantic, the sexual, the, the nail polish, the this, right? It's a very complicated thing. Putting together that kind of fragmentation with the pressure you have to figure this out about yourself, right, is a formula for a whole lot of anxiety, right? And what do we see all around us? A lot of really anxious people. It's not at all surprising. The problem, though, is that what the culture does is it tells us to kind of double down on, well, look, look at yourself even more deeply, da-da-da-da, invent yourself better, right? Okay, as opposed to being able to take ourselves seriously as, as creatures, as something with a given nature, right? That we don't have to invent ourselves. We, we just need to receive who we really are. That's a much less stressful, I'd propose, uh, way of thinking about things. Okay, so p part of what's just kind of ironic in, in the, the current trends is we have um, the, these identities, right, and, and these uh, names or these words. So L-G-B-T-I-Q-W-A, right? If you don't know, that's, that's what we're supposed to be saying now, okay? L, G, and B all have to do with sexual attraction. Who am I attracted to? T is what we're gonna talk about today. Q, I have not been able to figure out. So if somebody can explain that to me in a, in a positive, life-giving way, uh, I would love to hear it. Um, and then there's I, right, intersex. We're gonna talk about that in a minute. W is for wondering, right? Q used to be for questioning. 
but now it's for something else. So now we have W for wondering, and A is for ally. Okay, so we're today going to talk about the T. But part of what's so confusing about that is there's, that's a lot of different stuff lumped together. The whole question of sexual attraction is really very different from the question of what is my sex, right? Which is what the transgender person is asking. But they all get lumped in together. So it's a combination of the pressure of, of having all of these things here and fragmented in these ways, but also they're not distinguished from each other uh, very well, so it just leads to a lot of confusion. All right, I want to talk a little bit about intersex condition because um, it has been confused in many people's minds with uh, transgender, and it's a completely different reality, and it's very important for people to understand that. A person who has intersex condition has a biological condition uh, in which their body is itself confused, right? There really is an objective confusion in the body itself. This is not something that's happening in their minds, okay? And I've, I've listed here for you the three main um, conditions that get called intersex. There's Klinefelter syndrome. That is found in 0.2% of live births in the U.S. There's androgen insensitivity syndrome, which is even more rare, and then congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which is even more rare. But those are all things that happen to people, and then uh, the body itself is confused, more or less, and then they have to contend with that. A lot of people um, with, with one of these syndromes, uh, the effects are subtle enough that it's not recognized at birth that there is a confusion, right? It's pretty clear looking from the outside, okay, um, yeah, that's a boy or that's a girl. And things are, are clear enough visually that nobody really raises it as, as an issue. People with androgen insensitivity syndrome are biologically female, or excuse me, that's wrong, they're biologically male, um, but there's a point mutation um, at the genetic level that causes the, um, the receptor for the androgen hormones to not be um, received by the cells. So the masculinizing that goes on in, in the cells of men never happens in this person. So you end up with somebody who looks like a, a woman, right? And, and uh, often these people have, um, appear to be female at birth, are raised as female. Everybody thinks they just are female. But then something happens uh, later in life, uh, like their first pelvic exam, right, in their late teens, and lo and behold, they aren't female. Right, and you do you do an internal exam and discover there are undescended testes, right? That that you actually are a, a biological male. Now imagine how traumatic that would be. Okay, uh, I I I was somewhere, and a bishop came up to me and said that uh, 25 years before. Uh, somebody had called him in a panic on a Friday night saying, there's a wedding tomorrow and I just found a picture of the groom in high school and he was a girl. You have to stop the wedding. So he, he went and tried to find out what was going on and this man had had this syndrome 
and hadn't discovered that he was a man until he was about 18 years old, right? And then spent the next 10 years seeking medical help to try to remedy that and, and had gotten to the point where he, he was living fully as a man and was getting married as a man, okay? So those things happen. And that's real. So if, if your friend calls and says, uh, my grandchild is intersex, that doesn't mean that they've you know, lost their minds and become transgender, right? That's a real thing. And uh, sometimes those babies need to have um, a medical intervention immediately. The same kind of confusion that is, is causing um, confusion with the uh, reproductive organs in babies can also be interfering with uh, the elimination of waste, right? Either urine or feces. So, so for some of these kids, they have to have a, a surgical intervention to try to clear that up. And at that point, the, the question is, well, will it be easiest for this child to, to if we kind of go with female or with male, right? Okay, there are some intersex people now who, um, are very much objecting to the idea of cosmetic surgery simply to get their organs to look like one sex or the other, right? They're saying uh, medically necessary intervention is fine, but we don't think it's a good idea to do cosmetic surgery, right, just for the purposes of kind of looking like everybody else. I think that's a very interesting um, discussion. Okay. That's a very different situation from the person who has gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria means that there is a mismatch between the biology, biological reality and somebody's subjective experience. Okay, It's very clear in the gender dysphoric person what their sex is. And if you do a, a, a karyotype, right, and, and pull out all the chromosomes and stuff, it's very clear. You've either got XX or you've got XY. And when you look at them physically, it's very clear which, which sex they are. The problem is that they don't feel comfortable with that sex, right? And they manifest, you know, I, I just, I, I don't feel comfortable. Uh, there was a very interesting um, op-ed piece in the New York Times uh, the weekend before last by a person um, who, who goes by the name Andrea Long Chu uh, talking about um, the surgery that Andrea um, is going to very soon have to cause herself uh, to have a vagina, which she was not born with. That's a pretty radical surgery. Uh, and she writes uh, in this about why she's doing this. She describes her own feeling of, of dysphoria, or his own feeling, right? Andrea's feeling of dysphoria, she describes in this way. She says, it feels like being unable to get warm no matter how many layers you put on. It feels like hunger without appetite. It feels like getting on a plane to fly home only to realize mid-flight that this is it. You are going to spend the rest of your life on an airplane. It feels like grieving. It feels like having nothing to grieve. That's real, right, what Andrea is experiencing. That's suffering. Nothing of what I'm saying is meant to convey that somehow Andrea should just get over it, right? 
uh, this, this is real suffering that she has. The question is whether the best way to help Andrea is to um, assist her in uh, causing these things to be done to her body. Uh, since I was um, thinking in terms of talking to parents, right, there may be a few of you who have an Andrea in your family, and if people want to uh, talk about that and share that experience in the Q&A, that'll be fine. But what I really wanted to get, get out on the table is what we need to understand about these, this issue as it's arising in children. Children often, right, manifest what we could call gender non-conforming behavior, okay? You're, the, the, the little boy sees how everybody's so excited about his sister dancing around in her little tutu, and he decides he wants to have one too, right? That's gender non-conforming. Now, uh, if we were doing a complete thing on this, we'd have to have a psychologist here to talk about normal childhood play and normal experimentation with stereotypes. That's just a normal part of childhood. Nothing to, for anybody to get particularly panicked about. Part of the problem that we have now is we, we are, are so isolated from each other. 50, 60 years ago, if uh, a parent was worried about what her child was doing and started to wonder, gee, I, it, you know, is, is she uncomfortable with being a girl? Is he uncomfortable with being a boy? They'd call their mother, right, or their mother would be uh, visiting, and they'd say, you see what, how Johnny's doing that? What do you think about that? And she would be able to say, oh, don't you remember when Uncle Herbert went through that face and that's just what he was doing and we were all kind of like oh wow okay but we just sort of let it go and he's fine right that's the conversation we would have had now if a mom is concerned about her child what does she do she gets on the internet and she looks up gender nonconformity right and she is terrified by what she finds she panics, right? And a lot of bad things uh, can go from there. If she is diligent in her internet search, right, and she's gonna have to push pretty hard to find this, she will discover that right now there's a big debate between two different approaches to handling gender dysphoria, particularly in prepubescent children. The two approaches are the watchful waiting approach where you don't make a big deal out of it, right? Yes, uh, your purse is just as nice as mommy's, right? Okay, don't make a big deal out of it one way or the other, and just wait and see what happens, okay? So there's one camp that this says that if, if the child hasn't hit puberty, just let them do what they're doing, don't make a big deal out of it. The other camp says, no, if the child is really acting like they're uncomfortable with their gender, you owe it to the child to affirm that, right? This is fine. In fact, this is great, right? And, and uh, we're going to have a party, right? This is all really just fine. We're totally accepting of this. Okay, how do you choose? Well, even the people who think, and if, if on, the, on the bibliography I've given you this article by... Uh, John Cantor, um, 
in this, uh, uh, yeah, Kenneth Zucker, right, is, a, is another MD writing about this. Both of them are perfectly fine with uh, people transitioning uh, later in their lives, right? So if, if either of these guys saw somebody who was 18 and who was convinced that they, they were in the wrong body, these are two men who would actually say, oh, okay, here, let's get you going. But they agree this should never be done with children, okay? So the reason that that is important is they are not on our side. It's not because they're wacko Catholics, right, that they think that children should not have these interventions. It's because they're, they're scientists. They've been paying attention to what happens. And the data is very clear. Children who are before puberty, who go through a period of kind of, of, of this real gender nonconformity, 85 to 90% of them will be just fine by the time they hit their late teenage years. They will desist, is the lingo, if you just leave them alone. On the other hand, the kids who are affirmed, and everybody's like, wow, gee, this is so interesting. You are one of those rare and special people who is stuck in the wrong body, right? How many of them desist? Zero. There is 100% persistence in the people who are affirmed. Okay, when the data shows us if they had been left alone, 85 to 90% of them would have stopped, okay? To persist in gender dysphoria is to sign on, uh, in this country, for a regimen of uh, pubertal suppression, right? This started all the way back in 2007. Only for 10 years has this been happening, where people have said, well, if you've got a gender dysphoric kid at age 11, we'll start giving him hormones or her hormones to suppress the natural puberty because that would be too traumatic to go through puberty as, as their biological sex. Uh, the the uh, age for that now among some practitioners is down to eight. Okay. Uh, then the next step is to give the hormones of the opposite sex so that you can go through puberty, right, but of the sex you think you are, not the sex that you are. That is a sterilizing process. A kid who goes through that becomes infertile. If they keep going, right, and a lot of times what happens is, gee, I'm still not happy, gee, I'm still not happy, well, I guess you haven't transformed yourself enough. The next step is top surgery. So for girls, that means removing the breast buds or removing the breasts. For men, that means some kind of enhancement. Okay, and that's uh, regularly done uh, by uh, somebody who's 16. Right now, we're still pretty much holding the line at 18 for what we call bottom surgery, which is it, trying to take care of those organs. That is very dramatic, very violent, okay? Andrea Long Chu says when she has this uh, surgery, she will be left with what her body considers to be a wound. Her body will be constantly trying to heal up this wound that the surgeons have caused, right? And it'll be her job to be constantly undermining 
that healing process so she can keep that open. Okay. How can we justify this, right? In 2014, there were 24 gender clinics in the United States. One year later, there were 40. Now there are more than that. And now we have one of our own out at the Anschutz campus in Children's Hospital. It's the Children's Hospital Gender Clinic. How can that be justified, given that if we leave kids alone, most of the time, they'll stop? The alleged connection to suicide is really the problem there, and this is one of the things people need to understand. Parents get told, if you don't affirm your child in the gender that they think they are, they will commit suicide. And which would you rather have? Uh, the son you never knew you had, right? Or a, a dead child, right? What a position to be in, right? We, we would do all kinds of things in, in order to prevent that. That is using a study uh, that comes out of Sweden, which is also on the bibliography, that's the Degen C et al. long-term follow-up of transsexual people uh, undergoing sex reassignment surgery, the cohort study in Sweden. The reason Sweden is important is a couple things. They have universal health care, which is very standardized. So, uh, you know, this, this particular term about a particular procedure in this person, it's exactly the same thing as what this person has, unlike in the United States where words mean different things depending on different places that you're in. So it's very hard to make comparisons in the U.S. In Sweden, it's not hard at all. Uh, they, everybody's not in the same healthcare system, so every, the records are all there, easily available. And Sweden is the most accepting country of these sorts of things on the planet, right? If you, if you want to be somewhere where it's socially acceptable to, to change your gender, Sweden is the place you want to be. Okay, so they did this study of people who uh, reported themselves to be gender trans, uh, tr uh, gender, um, the wrong gender, gender dysphoric, and who wanted to um, proceed with the transsexual surgery. What they found is before the surgery, these people were 19 times more likely to commit suicide than the general population. Okay, and that's the uh, statistic that they're giving people to say, your kid is 19 times more likely to commit suicide than other people, so you better do this. Then the, the next step, because it's a longitudinal study, they show that for about 10 years after the surgery, their suicide rate goes down, not to the typical, but a lot closer to the typical suicide rate. And then after about 10 years, it goes right back up to 19 times higher than anybody else. Okay. That to me suggests that what these people are dealing with is a wound that didn't go away, right? that is still here, and now they're, they're trying to deal with what's, what's really an interior wound, right? And their bodies have been seriously maimed. 
and they are medicalized for the rest of their lives. If you, if you go through this process and persist in it, you're on hormones for the rest of your life. You're visiting the surgeon to take care of what went wrong this week for the rest of your life. Okay, this is not for the faint of heart. Okay, so that's very important to understand if people start um, invoking suicide, and that is what very frequently happens uh, in this country. Um, parents are pressured that you have to go along with this or your kid will, will commit suicide. The third um, feature of it that I, I think is important for people to be aware of and which I find incredibly alarming is the number of kids who are diagnosed with autism who are also then diagnosed as gender dysphoric. And this has been noticed in the literature, uh, but for many of the people who are studying it, it's just kind of an interesting coincidence, right? They're not really pushing to, well, why would that be? Okay, and particularly what they're finding is this is very dangerous for autistic girls who are already a pretty small population. But because of their difficulty socially, it becomes very easy for people who are looking for these things to say, well, maybe your problem is that you're not only autistic, you're also actually a boy. Okay. Now, I'm not autistic, but uh, one of my sisters who's a clinical psychologist says I am, I am definitely diagnosable in some way. <laughs> right? And I was miserable when I was 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, right? I was very miserable. And if somebody had said to me, you know, maybe the problem is you're trapped in the wrong body, I think I might have actually thought about that because I hated girls. They all hated me, right? Florence Erbisch had to tell me that everyone else had stopped wearing ankle socks two years ago, <laughs> right? Uh, it, it just all this stuff, I felt so much more comfortable with boys, right? I'm very glad that this craziness wasn't around because I think in my desperation, I might have picked it up. Okay, so that's another thing to be aware of. There is this in increasing um, diagnosis among kids who are um, not neurotypical, and that should be very concerning for all of us. Okay, so um, I need to stop. I have broken my promises to you. Uh, all right, the big thing for us is we are really committed to the idea that the soul and the body are one. On our view, and this is uh, in the catechism, it's what, 365, the soul is the form of the body. The soul is what makes my body be alive, be human, and also be female. It is impossible on our view for the soul and the body to somehow be mismatched, that I have the soul of a man inside of a woman's body. That is literally impossible on our view. Now, not everybody shares that view, but they haven't shown that ours is wrong, right? They just assume that what I am is a mind and my body is just this machine it's attached to. That's an assumption we've been making since Descartes first said it, right? But, you know, that was just, what, 450 years ago? That's a new idea, right? We don't have to believe it's true. And I, I think we've got good reason to believe it's not true. 
Okay, so I've closed here with a couple of quotations and I'll just point you to uh, this one from Pope Francis in Amoris Laetitia. It's a paragraph where he's specifically talking about uh, what he calls gender ideology. He says, let us not fall into the sin of trying to replace the creator. We are creatures and not omnipotent. Creation is prior to us and must be received as a gift. At the same time, we are called to protect our humanity. And this means in the first place, accepting it and respecting it as it was created. Thank you very much. There we go. Thanks, Eric. We do have some time for Q&A, and so if, if you have a question, what we'd ask is we want you to form uh, to your right on this side of the church. Uh, but if you would uh, form a line over here, we'll have you come up here, uh, and we want you to kind of stay behind the speaker because we get feedback problems, but if you have uh, questions for Dr. Selner Wright, um, and again, just one more encouragement. Uh, the dialogue is so important and so good, um, but we do ask that everyone just be respectful and cordial in their questions. Okay. I'll try not to be rude. Especially you. But really, if, if anybody does uh, need to go, uh, feel free. Right. Sorry, I'm a little late to your talk, so I might have missed your answer to my question. But my question is, what do you think is the cure for gender dysphoria? Well, um, I'm not qualified to answer that question. Um, it seems to me, from the reading I've done and the people I've encountered, that if we find the cause of gender dysphoria, it's going to turn out to be a lot of different causes in different people. Um, I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all sort of thing. Um, it, it's, it's clear that for some people, um, behaving as the other sex, for some reason, um, feels necessary in order to relieve anxiety. So I, I think that there, and that's, but I don't think that's everybody, but I think there is a subset of the gender dysphoric population where for, this has been kind of lit on as a coping mechanism to deal with some anxiety. Um, but I don't think that that's all of them. So um, one of the problems that we have is that uh, psychologists are often afraid to uh, treat people who are gender dysphoric with the idea that this is a problem that we'd like to solve because then it sounds like it's reparative um, therapy and you're not allowed to do that. Um, but what the clinicians who I've spoken to have told me is that what they find is that if a, if a person comes in and presents themselves as, as feeling like they're in the wrong body, if they say, wow, okay, wow, right? But then just kind of bracket it and say, we are definitely going to talk about that. Uh, tell me what else is going on. There's always something else, and usually several other things. And if they focus on trying to help the person kind of get a hold of those things, their experience is the gender dysphoria goes away, that it's, it's really a side effect of the, these other unreconciled um, wounds. 
Okay, now what do I know? I am, I am not a psychologist, but people who, who I um, trust say that's their experience. Yeah, okay, cool. So yeah, we have to find the cause of it and then we can find the cure, sort of. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, but I don't think there's gonna be one thing. Yeah. Right? Thank you. Yeah. Hey, Doctor Wright. Hey. Um, my name's Kyle. Um, I uh, was a parishioner here for three years, and now my home parish is St. Ignatius down uh, up north in Denver. Um, I'm super interested in this combination uh, around um, folks who are transgender and the connection to, to suicide and, and sort of how that plays out for families mm. specifically. Mm. Um, so super appreciate your points around um, kids sort of exploring and trying on different genders as, as children and sort of just letting it go. Uh, but thinking about, uh, you know, kids who are like 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, who for years and years and years are saying, look, I'm, I'm transgender, I'm a boy that grew up in a woman's body that's like, you know, very, very serious, very long term. Yeah. Um, I'm really interested in the way in which family rejection plays into much, much higher rates of suicide. Mm -hmm. um, a 2010 study out of University of San Francisco found that high levels of rejection within families. And what that means for, for the study is not using the person's preferred uh, pronouns, not letting their kid have gay or trans friends, mm -hmm. um, having homo homophobic or transphobic jokes, jokes in the house, mm. increases the risk of suicide by eight times the level of those with low levels of rejection in the family. Right. Um, so I think one of the things that we have to do is distinguish between rejecting somebody, right, which is clearly not Christian, and um, being clear about what the possible truth is, right? So if, if, if this is my child, I'm going to suffer with him, right? I'm going to um, acknowledge how difficult this is, um, but I'm not going to pretend that he's actually a girl, um, the analogy that gets drawn, this is not original with me, is that cooperating in that, affirming that, is analogous to going on a diet with the anorexic. Nobody would think that that was the loving thing to do, right? Um, so it, it's, it's just, it's rather mysterious how it's clear to everybody that there is an objective situation with the anorexic and that their body image is simply inaccurate. Um, and it, it, it was true for a very long time in the psychological community that gender dysphoria, it used to be called gender identity disorder and was clearly a species of body dysmorphic disorder and, and related to anorexia. It's both the person's self image is simply wrong. Um, it's become much more difficult to say that for reasons that are pretty mysterious to me. <laughs> You're a hater if you say that. But I can't love my child by affirming him in something that's not true. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that I have to be mean to him, mm -hmm. right? So um, Father Bochansky from uh, Courage, the head of Courage, he talks about... Um, kind of negotiating a nickname <laughs> that the, this person can feel comfortable with uh, that 
maybe it's a, from their childhood or something that it is less triggering for them, but doesn't feel so dishonest to me. I think those sorts of negotiations are critical. And, and the person who's experiencing the difficulty, part of their growth as a person is to recognize, this is not just hard for me, <laughs> this is hard for everybody. And I can't just insist on it has to be my way or I just completely collapse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, super appreciate that response. I think that um, in terms of like the, uh, the purpose of this talk and thinking about all the parents out there and, and, and sort of negotiating what this looks like as parents and, yeah. and how we show up um, and also thinking sort of around Catholic values around family and, and, and sort of the importance of having um, strong families. I think it's pretty mm -hmm. intuitive for us to, uh, right. to understand the importance of, of support there. Right. Um, I think that the critical difference with the anorexia piece is that being anorexic with your kid doesn't help your kid not commit suicide. Um, and these numbers are stark, right? Literally eight times more likely to commit suicide right. um, within your youth if right. your parents aren't accepting right. of your chosen gender. And so yeah. I, I think that there's okay. a real question there of yeah. but the how fact, do we support? The, the fact that these transsexuals who go through the transition and everybody affirms them, and Sweden does not have a problem with rejecting them, and yet after 10 years, they're back up to 19 times the suicide rate. There's something else going on. Um, and if I really care about my child, that's what I wanna try to help them figure out. Mm -hmm. So for us as Catholics, it's the truth and it's the truth spoken in charity. So I don't reject my child. I don't kick his friends out of the house, right? Um, but on the other hand, they know when they come over, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna, yeah, right? She just thinks this is really not true, oh, right? But hopefully her lasagna is good enough that we'll, we'll, we'll put up with it, right? Yep. Um, I promise this is the last comment. I don't want to mo monopolize the, the debate. Um, I think that uh, one thing that comes up, so a 2018 study that was a meta-analysis of all long-term studies of suicide and, and, and gender dysphoria mm -hmm. found that 94% of those studies found that hormone replacement um, actually decreased the, the risk of suicide. So the Sweden study is super important, very much there, and is very, very much in the minority of suggesting that gender, that, that hormone replacement mm -hmm. um, or surgery uh, increases the risk of suicide over time. But is that following people yeah. over, over that long a period over time. of time? And, and what, the, what, the, what the study found is, look, early in childhood, the family is just so, so crucial. Supporting mm -hmm. family, getting that support. Mm -hmm. um, but transgender folks have really, really high rates of homelessness, of unemployment, mm -hmm. um, of social, social isolation that comes around right. you know, issues with being transgender in the world. Right, yeah. Um, so I, I think it points broadly to this piece that when folks are supported and loved and cared for, right. that they do better in this world. And so sure. um, but I I'm, think that we both feel, how do we, how do we love, how do we support, and right. how, do we, how right. do we get folks there? Right. And we don't do it by lying to people. Great. Thank you. So you mentioned the Children's Colorado, the Children's Hospital Colorado Gender Clinic, um, yeah. which is just really disappointing. I'm, I work at Children's and it's hard to see all this propaganda rolled out. And yet you mentioned this 
you know, op-ed piece by Andrea. Yeah. And, you know, you're using she pronouns and things like that. So I kind of have a question, like, we're on the periphery, so I'm, I'm you know, seeing kids, seeing patients mm. who are flagging as has a preferred pronoun, has a preferred nickname, or, yeah. you know, you have a friend's kid who is going through this, the parents have decided we're gonna call her her, right. you know, we're gonna say Shirley instead of Sam, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. How do we, you know, speak that truth in love kind of from the periphery? Like how do, yeah. what are specifics that we can do? Yeah. Do we use the pronouns but continue to say this isn't true? I mean, that feels like as much of a lie as yeah. supporting it. The pronoun stuff is hard. Um, it, I think that um, you you have to use prudence. So if this is if if I have small children and they have a friend who's going through this and whose parents are supporting that, um, my job is to be talking to my kids about wow, <laughs> right? This is this is really very confused and. Um, I, 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 this this really um, appears to be something that's not the best thing for this child, and it's just like anything else. You know, if it's if it's it's if it's huge enough, it may be. Well, we're we're not going to do that play date every week or whatever it is that we've been doing, and then when the other mom says, "How could you do this?" then you're going to have to have a really hard conversation. You know, I I just I really don't think that this is the best thing and. Do you know about these rates of desistance? And um, you know, ha have you have you really got the facts? Um, but it's different in different places. I I I I know someone who teaches at a university that requires that you use the people's pronouns that they prefer. And if you mess up in class and use gendered language, there's now this protocol at this university that you have to apologize immediately. You have to acknowledge the pain that you have caused and promise to do better in the future, right? And this is a condition of her employment. So I told her, you can't fix that. You're not in a position to fix that. Um, you know, so you're not just collaborating with evil if you do that um, in, in class, because they're making it a, a condition. But I really think the the response to that shouldn't be a Catholic response. It should be an American response. Yeah. That is absolutely un-American to impose speech on people and that you, you have to think this and you have to talk this way. And I, I, so I really think it's a mistake to, to think a bit about it in religious terms. I mean, this is just shocking that this would happen in the United States. I'm sorry, I kind of rambled. No, I think that helps because I can see something coming down the pike where it would be a condition of my employment yeah. to, you know, write discharge instructions in the preferred language or something right. like that. But I think, you know, you you do that without also addressing to administration your concern with this policy. Right. Then I, I think you do have a risk, like an obligation to respond. Right. Even if you're not going to fix it. Right. And what I would say to my institution is. Where's your data? Where's your data that this really is the best thing for kids? Because it sure seems like the, the data, at least that I've been seeing, is all on the other side. And this is, this is about being cool and not getting yelled at uh, in public. 
right? Well, that's not how we're supposed to be making our medical decisions. You know, the, the cool kids don't win at science. It's not supposed to be that way, right? <laughs> but that, that is uh, kind of how it's turned into it. So I would insist on scientific rigor. You know, where's, where's, the, proto where's the, the scientific basis for this as being the protocol? Thank you. I want to be respectful of, of time, so uh, Doc, can we take just one more? Okay. And, it, and I know it's a long line, but if you guys afterwards, you want to grab Dr. Sonner, right? Um, Not too hard. You, yeah. <laughs> okay. Hi there. I first want to just thank you for creating this opportunity and Lords for creating this opportunity because I think that this is a topic that's not talked about enough in the Catholic Church and actually to, to I think what we need to be more uncomfortable in talking about this aspect because we're sitting in our comfort. We're not actually engaging in this dialogue. So thank you both um, to Lords and to yourself. Um, I have two questions. They're not related, but they're both related to LGBTQIA. <laughs> um, my first question is, what would you say to the person who's most likely sitting in this audience, more than one, who experiences something along the LGBTQIA spectrum? Mm -hmm. um, what would you say to them right now, sitting into this room and listening to you? Um, and second, uh, more related to the um, gay and uh, same-sex attracted issue, there's been views and statements around the sex abuse scandal and how that's been related to, to gay priests. And I'm wondering if you could calm, give your opinion or reflections on that as well. Okay, well, actually those are connected to each other. Um, what I would say is issues of, of sexual attraction are important, but they're not all that we are, right? There's a lot more to me than the fact that I'm attracted to my husband. There's a lot more to all of us than the issues of, of attraction. And we need to be able to see each other in terms of that wholeness and not just be reduced to um, this one aspect of ourselves, is, is what I would say. So the reason that we shouldn't be rejecting kids who, who are dealing with this is because they're, they're so much more than just that. Um, and to just um, treat them that way uh, is just a lie about who they are because they are so much more than just that. One of our big advantages in our tradition is that we see the difference between the action and the person doing the, the action. Those are not exactly the same thing as each other. When a, when a kid tells lies, if we're good parents on a good day, right, we don't get down in their face and say, you are a liar, right? Because that's not true. He's not a liar. He's just told a few lies, right? And it's a big mistake to kind of squash him into that and make that his identity, right? That's a good way to really hurt him. In the same way, certain activities don't have to then define everything about us. We need to give ourselves some freedom to think about what's the life I want to live. And for some of us, the whole, the, the more whole life that we're going to have is, is maybe one that's not sexually active, right? And the, what the, the church calls everybody who's not married to, to be celibate. Right? And calls those who are married to refrain from having sex with all those other people that they're attracted to. 
right? It's, it's not like just one group of people is being singled out as, you can't do it, right? Well, one of the problems is that our culture has, has completely bought the lie that your identity is completely wrapped up with your sexual activity, right? This is how you become a man. This is how you become a woman. This is how you are fulfilled, right? Well, I'm sorry, but if that's how we're fulfilled, we're really sunk, right? I mean, that's just, that, is that really enough, right, to, to constitute the meaning of my life, okay? And all my other relationships are just sort of fluff, you know, to kind of get me along until the next time I'm with my husband. That, that cannot be what life is for any of us, okay? So, um, so that's what I would say, is, is that the, the fact that I am convinced that same-sex activity and um, transition activity is not the best thing for anybody, right? That's what I'm saying. But that doesn't mean that I, I love you less, right? It, it, but it does mean I am concerned, right? I, I think that this is not compatible with your flourishing. Um, and that's, that's coming out of a place of love and seeing all the disintegration around us and, and hoping that you aren't disintegrating too. So, yeah, the, it seems to me that the, the crisis in the church has to do with priests being caught up in the same cultural confusion and buying the lie that you have to be sexually engaged with someone in order to um, be fulfilled, right? And that a life without sex is just really, you just can't be expected to do that. That's dumb. But I think a lot of priests bought, bought the lie and they, they, they uh, didn't want to be chased, and so they weren't. And the fact that a significant percentage of the, of the children who were abused are boys, and most of them are past puberty, um, you know, means that the orientation of, of the priest is, is certainly having some impact. But the unchastity of a priest with a woman is just as bad, right, and just as harmful um, it, with a child as, as it is with anyone else. Yeah, I guess I feel concerned with the idea that the gay priest is the cause of the sex abuse scandal. No. Because that, well, that's, I would say that sex abuse is more of an issue of power than yeah. it is a, of sexual attraction. Right. Well, I think that's something that we really need to go into. And, it, and we do have the problem that there were a lot of men in seminary um, who really thought that the church's teaching about these things was about to change and they were gonna be allowed to get married, and some of them really thought everybody was gonna think homosexuality was fine, right? And, and those are the ones who then all left in a, in a big group, but they were very confused while they were here. So it's sin, right? It's sin, and, and we have to hate sin. Um, but we never hate the sinner. Um, so it's, it's not as simple. People are just really freaking out, and so they want a simple solution. So it's just all about gay priests, and we fix that, and everything is fine. Well, no, everything won't be fine. 
So, you know, 2002 was clearly inadequate. We just went after priests and children. There's more to the problem than that, right? Absolutely, and then I guess to your to your answer to your first question, it sounds like the main message that you're you're trying or wanting to receive or to to promulgate is that sexual activity is different than sexual identity, and depending on how you act on it, that's where the morality stands, and that regardless of where someone is acting or identifying, you love them. And right. I think I would say that that's a really hard message for someone who's living in the LGBTQIA world to receive from a church that's disregarding their romantic lover activity? Well, I don't think we're disregarding it. I think we're saying we don't think it's healthy. Uh, we think that um, celibacy is a healthier choice. Um, and um, organizations like Courage are not about turning people from being homosexual to being heterosexual. They're about integrating the fact that I have this very deep-seated attraction into the rest of my life and figuring out how, how does that fit in with the rest of this. And it fits in um, as a call to chastity. If I may just end with a recommendation for a book called Guiding Families, that's by an organization called Lead Them Home, but it's very similar to Courage, except it's a Christian organization, and it's really good for families in terms of how to engage with people who are, are experiencing these things, but also still um, underlining the traditional Christian ethics. So that's just okay, a really great that's book. great. Say the name again. Uh, Guiding Families by okay. Lead Them Home. Okay, and the people who are doing the gender matters, that's Living Waters. Um, they're also very good, so. Thank you, doctor. You're welcome. Uh, I wanna thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, a huge thanks to our staff who, who worked hard to put this on. Of course, to Dr. Uh, Solner Wright. <clears throat> Stay tuned, there's more to come. I'm also, I also wanna say all those who had questions tonight, Thank you for doing that. I know it's kind of hard sometimes to come forward and, and bring questions. And dialogue is a hugely important part of our culture and of our uh, society. So thank you for doing that. Um, we're going to have more events coming this spring. So check out our website, lordsdenver.org. And uh, have a great night. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>